That was amazing. What perfect timing. Welcome, everybody, online audience and people in the hall today uh, to our book launch slash seminar uh, for our new pamphlet. How did I manage not to have one with me? Britain's Road to Socialism. Uh, and I'm sitting here next to the author of our pamphlet, Comrade Ranjit Bra. Um, and essentially, I won't take his thunder by explaining to you all of what it's about. Um, <laughs> Britain's Road to Socialism, uh, as it was initially formulated by the old CPGB, the old Britain's Communist Party, back in 1951, the first version, uh, was a forerunner, in fact, of the revisionism that gripped the world communist movement after the death of Stalin. Britain has the dubious honour of having committed to a revisionist programme before Khrushchev took over the Soviet Union, before um, revisionism took hold of our movement on a global scale. Uh, not quite sure what that tells you about the state of, of Britain and British politics. Um, but So it's an important document in, uh, in British working class history. Today it might feel like a total irrelevance. It feels like an irrelevance because of the line that was pushed into the British working class for 80 years, which destroyed its class consciousness, its cohesion, its awareness of its historic destiny to fight for socialism, and pushed it in the direction of simply supporting the Labour Party and, and turning out to vote at elections and believing that somehow or other we'd muddle through to a socialist-slash-nicer life that way. Um, and, you know... So much has flowed from that that this is not a small question. Uh, and the CPB, despite all the evidence to the contrary, continues to stick to its line of, you know, the way forward is a peaceful one, it's a democratic one, it's a parliamentary one, it's in, it's in coordination with the Labour Party, etc., etc. So this is, a, this is the reason that we undertook this analysis of uh, the programme of the Communist Party of Britain, not because they at the moment are such great movers and shakers, but because this is a line which has essentially played a big role in destroying the working class movement in Britain and putting us to the position where we're having to start again, essentially to build a communist organisation and a class-conscious socialist understanding. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to Comrade Ranjit to explain in more detail uh, his book. Thanks very much, comrades. It's so good to be with you, so many of you in the hall. Thank you all for coming out uh, this Saturday. Um, and welcome to everyone streaming uh, at home. Um, you're going to have to take my word for it that I've made a rather smart presentation <laughs> uh, and a lot of PowerPoint slides. Uh, I was reading recently that the thing to do with PowerPoint is to have no more than 10 slides, presentation 20 minutes, and all the slides being 30 point, and I'm going to break all those rules. But you can't see my slides, so maybe that's fine. But I'm going to use it as an aid memoir to guide me through the presentation. There will be a few quotes, and those passages are necessary because I'm going to talk about some documents um, which I can't just allude to without giving you some idea of their, of their content. So I hope you'll bear with me uh, while I give some of those quotes. I think it'd be helpful to understand the substance that we're saying. I'm hoping we'll limit this presentation to an hour or 50 minutes, something like that. Um, and what we'll do is later on, I will marry up the talk and, and the slides to give you kind of some idea directly of what we're talking about, because they do have some uh, visual impact. 
Um, the new pamphlet is out. I'll just hide, hold it up very briefly. Um, it, it originally was uh, published as a series of articles broken up into three articles in the, in the, in the workers' journal Lalkar, L-A-L-K-A-R. Um, please go online and have a look, lalkar.org. You can find the articles and you can read them for free. The main thing is I, want, I would like people to read them and, and think about what this says rather than buy the pamphlet. But you can buy the pamphlet as well. And the pamphlet is available at uh, thecommunists.org. Uh, which is our party website. So please have a look. And if at the end of this you like the presentation, please spread it, um, uh, press the like button, help our algorithm, even though it's stacked against us. We're, we're quite clear about that. And if you want to learn more, get in touch with us. And if you want to join our organisation, please do so. You can do that all online. Make contact with us and we'll be in touch with you. So the British Road to Socialism is a document that was first published in 1951 by the old Communist Party of Great Britain, CPGB, when there was just one Communist Party in Britain. The British road to socialism has been central to the history of the British working class since the time of its publication, though that's not always clear to every member of the British working class, and it still has significance, which is why it's worth going over and addressing today. The Communist Party of Great Britain was formed in 1920 and under the direct influence and impetus of the Great October Revolution in Russia. Indeed, um, the parties who formed the CPGB back in 1920, many of their leading members were in unity discussion around the time of the October Revolution. And in fact, on the occasion of the Second Congress of the Communist International in 1920, many of their leaders journeyed to Russia, participated in that second Congress of the new Third International, and spoke directly with Lenin, and under his guidance, um, uh, formed their organisation and established its initial line. <clears throat> if we fast forward for a moment past that, through 30 tumultuous years um, during which time we saw the Great Depression, the Second World War, the victory of the Soviet Union over the fascist armies. Much of that battle, of course, played out in Ukraine where we're seeing a kind of rerun of history, repeating that history as a kind of farcical rerun. We saw the victories of China's Red Army and the founding of the People's Republic of China, whole host of Eastern people's democracies formed, a very different atmosphere. And it was in that context, in 1951, that the British Road to Socialism was first published. And it had replaced for Soviet Britain and Class Against Class, which had been the old CPGB's uh, programmes, if you like, as specifically as an electoral platform for the 1951 election. And in fact, that 1951 election overturned the post-war Labour government and re-elected Winston Churchill, who came back to power. The preamble of that initial document was written by Harry Pollitt. Um, and he asks quite you know, clearly in that document then, 1951, why has the Labour government thus failed the hopes of the people? And note that this is the post-war Labour government of Clement Attlee that really now... All of our leaders, our left leaders, look back and ask us to idolise as the epitome of what socialism is all about. It brought the NHS, it brought the welfare state, look what it's done for us, we need to get back to this. But that's not what 
the communists, who at that point were a very strong force in British politics, thought. And he answers, and this is the words of his preamble, and I'm going to read you a few paragraphs, so please just bear with me and stay with me while I do so. This is Harry Pollitt. Harry Pollitt, <clears throat> who was famous, and I had it in my, in my document, because he led, for example, in 1920, the Hands Off Russia campaign, and he led dockers in the east end of London to refuse to load weapons which were being shipped to Russia to fight a counter-revolutionary war to try and strangle the Soviet Union at birth. And he became the leader, well-respected workers' leader, trade unionist, and the leader of the Communist Party this time. And he wrote this about the betrayal of the Labour Party. He said, Far from challenging the rights and privileges of big business at home and abroad, it, the Labour Party, has allied itself with big business against the people. It joined hands with the Tories and the American big capitalists in an imperialist foreign policy which is ruining Britain. The Labour government has formed a war bloc with American imperialism against the socialist Soviet Union, the new China, the people's democracies and the colonial peoples struggling for their national liberation and independence. It, the Labour Party of Clement Attlee, has conducted wars against the peoples of Malaya, and Korea, and we've got, this is not exhaustive, I'm reading his words, but also you know, against the peoples of Greece. It has sold out Britain to American big business. The Labour government has imposed a crushing rearmament programme for a new war at the expense of the social needs of the people. The profits of the big trusts and monopolies are higher than they have ever been. Nine-tenths of the wealth of the country is still owned by one-tenth of the population. Sham measures of nationalisation, sham measures of nationalisation. Remember, we think of all of the welfare state, the NHS, all of the things that we had, which are now being sold off. But he called them sham measures of nationalisation because of the huge amounts of compensation that was given to big business, actually bailing them out of a position where all of those industries needed huge investment to get them going. So as ever, we said Marx used to say, under capitalism, you find that the national debt is made public, and the wealth is always in private hands. And that's the situation that we were seeing. Okay? He said, the capitalists have done exceptionally well under the Labour government indeed. They've never been better off. Workers have, been, have paid for all of this in low wages, higher prices, heavier taxation, while the Labour government has conducted an offensive against the workers' efforts to secure increased wages. Troops have been used in strikes. Hard-won democratic rights have been ruthlessly attacked. Strikers have been arrested and prosecuted under legislation from the war, which brought, made it essentially illegal to strike and brought in arbitration committees. The talk of peace and socialism by the Labour leaders has proved to be a fraud and deception. The dominant Labour Party leaders, Attlee, Bevin and Morrison, like Macdonald, Snowden and Thomas before them, have nothing in common with socialism or the interests of working people. Their outlook and practice reflects that of the Tories, and the wealthy ruling class whose interests they serve and not the aims of the working people. They are, in reality, only a left wing of the Tories like the old Liberal Party. Does it sound familiar? Does it resonate with you? Right-wing Labour policy has strengthened the Tories at home and abroad. It has confused, disorganised and split the working class movement. It has done this at a time when all over the world vast changes are taking place. A great part of Eastern Europe has gone socialist 
and the workers are in power. In the Far East, the Chinese revolution has freed hundreds of millions from the landlords and the foreign bankers. In the socialist Soviet Union, great peaceful schemes of new construction are raising the living standards of the people every year. 1951. Instead of bringing Britain into close association and friendship with these advancing countries, the Labour leaders in Britain have joined in a united front with the Tories and the American millionaires to attack socialism and the national liberation movements and to defend capitalism and imperialism. If the people are to advance, both the Tories and their allies in the Labour movement, the right-wing Labour leaders must be fought and defeated. The lesson of the failure of the Labour government is not the failure of socialism, it is the failure of Labour reformism and Labour imperialism, which is the servant of the big capitalist interests. You can clap if you like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that is, um, that's Harry Pollitt like an old-style communist who was one of the formers behind the CPGB. But already what he started to switch towards the end of, it, end of his um, um, preamble was the fact that Labour had betrayed the people, but it was the top leadership of the Labour Party that had to be fought, whereas the rank and file of the leadership still represented... The, the, sorry, the rank and file of the Labour Party still represented the mass party of the working class, and we need to affiliate, we need to merge with them, we need to enter into the Labour Party, we need to reclaim it for socialism. So it was already, at the same time as totally attacking the history and record of all Labour governments, still setting the scene for saying, but we still have to vote for it, we still have to support it, we still have to infiltrate it and win it back for what it should be, which is our party. So already there's a, there's a dichotomy developing. Isolate the right-wing Labour leaders. Pollitt and the CPGB leaders had not understood then, at that point, Lenin's opinion that the entire British Labour Party was a bourgeois Labour Party, a party that had workers in it more so then than now, but followed bourgeois capitalist policies against the workers' interest. And as that preamble already showed, at that point in 1951, Labour had already established itself as an absolute tool of British imperialism, in the working class movement. I want to go back, rewind back to that second Congress uh, of the Comintern and think about who participated in it and what was Lenin's advice. We had the British Socialist Party, the industrial workers of the world, the shop stewards movement so strong in the Clyde side in Scotland with Willie Gallagher, um, uh, David Ramsey, Jack Tanner. Uh, and we had the Workers' Socialist Federation. Sylvia Pankhurst is a name has far greater uh, resonance, if you like, at least the Pankhurst name. We're always told to look to Emmeline Pankhurst as the kind of absolutely respectable, bourgeois, relatively member of the family as the epitome of the suffragette movement. But we are encouraged to celebrate the suffragette movement. But the fact that Sylvia Pankhurst was a communist who took part in the Second International, who formed the Communist Party in Britain, is very much written out of that, uh, that history. And when they attended, what was Lenin's advice? One, it was, you guys must submerge your differences, throw your lot in together, learn to live with the differences among you, but form a broad, united party. Very important. Form a communist party with the rules of the Communist International and the obligations of those parties, and start actively campaigning in the British working class movement. 
What was the big point of contention amongst them? Well, in particular, it was the attitude towards that was then the independent Labour Party and later became the Labour Party. As it was a reformist movement, as it was, um, if you like, already shown itself to be very similar to the liberal movement. It was liberal Labourism. It was a party for the working class, representing working class interests in Parliament. So not going beyond the limits of capitalism, setting itself from the beginning quite consciously, in fact, not an economic programme of socialism, but begging for a few slight better wages, better conditions within the framework of capitalism. How, how they should, should they be part of it? Should they campaign with it? Lenin said, despite all his condemnation of the, of the Labour Party, of the Second International during the war, if you read five, ten volumes of Lenin's works relating to the pre-war period and the war period, and I'll touch a little bit on this, you know, he absolutely condemns the fact that the, these working class socialist parties who signed up to turn this charnel house of World War I into a revolution and get rid of capitalism and build real socialism with working people in power and directing the economy and solving the national economic interests in line with the interests of workers, they'd failed to do that. And in fact, that the, most of these parties, Labour Party included, had gone over as recruiting sergeants for the war effort, had set the workers against each other, had told the workers to fire upon each other and murder each other just because they were from different countries. And whose interests were they serving in this? The interests of their capitalist class who were just fighting about how to divide the world and the profits amongst them. Despite all that, he said, actually, in Britain, once you've formed the Communist Party, you should have an electoral alliance with the Labour Party. And he said it at that time in 1920 because... The ILP had the overwhelming support of British workers. They had, at that point, never had a government. Four years later, in 1924, they had Ramsay MacDonald's government. But in 1920, at that time, they'd never had a government. The workers had not seen that party betray them in practice. And what's more, at that time, it was possible to affiliate to the Labour Party, to become part of it, to campaign with it, and have absolute freedom of criticism. So you could go into it, and you wouldn't be bound or tied in what you could say. You could go in and say vote for Labour, get rid of the capitalists, get rid of Labour, get rid of Tories, but be aware, this is the limitations of the party. This leader is trying to introduce Tory policies, okay? So you could have absolute freedom of criticism. The purpose of this proposed 1920 electoral pact, not 2020, 1920, uh, was the basis, he said, would be on the basis of an agreement. So communists, and who, who were a very significant force in the British Labour movement at this time, very significant force, would join with the Independent Labour Party on the basis of we'd all fight together, but the seats would be divided according to a pre-existing you know, um, formula based on our relative strength. So we'd get together at a meeting, and because of our representation, we'd decide how the vote should be split. So 20% of the seats would go to the Communists and 80 would go to Labour. Can you imagine such an agreement happening now between a Communist Party and the Labour Party as it currently exists? Absolutely not. Freedom of criticism? Freedom of propaganda, an electoral alliance in which we'll campaign together and then we'll get 20% of the seats and we'll be able to carry on our agitation within Parliament? Absolutely not. Um, the purpose of this was not to embellish social democracy, he said, but in fact show the workers' support. They were very viscerally against capitalism, against the war, against all the experiences they'd been through. Mutinies had happened in World War I, things that are written out of history. Some of you may have seen a show on TV called The Monocle Mutineer about Percy Topless. Actually, this is a real historical event. 
So such was the draconian nature of the regime imposed on troops who were being sent on Ypres, the Somme, to their mechanized deaths in hundreds of thousands, that there were mutiny. Why would you want to go in your, to your mechanized death in hundreds of thousands? It wasn't just sad poetry of Sassoon and Owen that came out of this. It was direct mutiny. And when they talk about fraternization in the trenches in World War I and people playing football and just wanting to go home for Christmas, it wasn't just that. It happened in 1917. It happened under the direct impetus and agitation of Bolshevik propaganda in the trenches, that the troops were deeply affected with the idea that why should they be shooting their brother workers just for over there? Why couldn't they play football when actually their main enemies were the capitalists who were directing them to their deaths? This was a very major theme, which is now written out like it never happened. Fraternization doesn't just happen in wars. Americans didn't like to start playing football with the Vietnamese. <laughs> All right, because they didn't have that kind of leadership and fraternization. They fragged their commanders. They didn't like their commanders so much that they executed them if they were particularly unpopular. That's again written out of history. But they didn't have that mass fraternization. And that was because the level of Bolshevik propaganda, of socialist agitation amongst the working class. Okay, that's written out of history. So Lenin said, you join to go and get a Labour Party government on these terms, that you can expose them and expose their shortcomings and show the way they've betrayed the workers, as in fact was pointed out in the preamble of the 1951 first edition of British Road to Socialism, just the way that it was clear that, the, that a bourgeois Labour Party would betray the working class. So Lenin said, with my vote, when you're canvassing, this is what you should say to the working people. He said, with my vote, I want to support Henderson. No one knows who Henderson is. Arthur Henderson was the leader of the Labour Party before Ramsay MacDonald. So he was never became prime minister, but he was the initial leader of the independent Labour Party. And he took part in the unity government. And he was a cabinet minister, in fact, during World War I. So with my vote, I want to support Henderson in the same way as a rope supports a hanged man that the impending establishment of a government of the Hendersons will prove that I'm right, will bring the masses over to my side, will hasten the political death of the Hendersons and Snowdens and McDonald's, just as was the case with their kindred spirits in Russia and Germany. So direct, practical experience of the betrayal of labour, in order that the people should see they need to move beyond this and actually think about socialism meaning an economic programme of socialism, not someone who will beg for a few more pence for you in Parliament if indeed they do that. In fact, I'm not going to read you all of this particular, I don't have my slides up, but there's a very nice pamphlet. Uh, well, it's really a, an article. Ramsay MacDonald, um, who, of course, was the first leader of the first two Labour administrations, um, wrote an article after World War I in saying what a shame it was that this third international had been formed, the Communist International, and seeking to write out of history this whole betrayal of the working people by the socialist movement, by the Second International, which had in fact enlisted under their respective imperialist governments and led the people to slaughter each other in the trenches. And Lenin wrote a very eloquent... If, 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 I bring up Lenin's advice in particular because those who still support the modern version of British Road to Socialism and say we should continue to support the Labour Party as being the only vehicle to achieve socialism in this country constantly refer back to this idea that Lenin told us to do it. If you're a communist, you support Labour, because Lenin told us to do it. <laughs> and he told us in 1920. And he told us with a particular set of conditions, and he told us in a particular set of circumstances, 
none of which apply today. Okay? But it's worth looking back at. And those who say, or Lenin, Lenin's advice, a good communist supports the Labour Party, full stop, and they don't want to, you to look beyond that. But any acquaintance with class society as it stands now, the record of the Labour Party, or indeed Lenin's actual advice at the time, kind of smashes that position to smithereens. Um, so it talks about Soviet democracy being an advance upon straightforward bourgeois democracy, and that's straightforward. But he also says, you know, Ramsay MacDonald claims there was no particular instruction to the Labour Party or other socialist parties before World War I, you know, not to collaborate with the war effort. Said Ramsay MacDonald asserts that until the war of 1914 to 1918, the International only said that in a war of national defence, socialists must unite with the other parties. Whatever that means. Lenin says this is a monstrous, a glaring deviation from the truth. Everybody knows that the Baal Manifesto of 1912, this was a, a manifesto of the Second International, all the socialist leading parties, which, who were becoming large mass parties, including the German Social Democratic Party, including the Labour Party, including the Bolsheviks were there, so Lenin was at that, Ramsay MacDonald was at that, the leaders of the German Social Democrats were that. They were the leading organisations of the working class of the chief European powers, and it was absolutely clear, as he says, that manifesto unanimously adopted by all socialists and of all the documents of the international, it alone refers to the war that was then impending between the British and German groups of imperialist predators, which in 1912 everybody clearly saw was in preparation and which broke out in 1914. Absolutely clear. And I'll invite anyone who wants to go and see it to look at the resolution on war of the 1912 manifesto. It was a labour to which Ramsay MacDonald appended his signature. It was about this war that the Baal Manifesto said three things which MacDonald now passes over in silence, committing an enormous crime against socialism and proving that with people like him a split is necessary because in fact they serve the bourgeoisie and not the proletariat, the capitalists, not the workers. And those three things were the war that threatens cannot be justified one whit as being in the interests of national freedom. Okay, so still when you look at David Cameron on the 100th anniversary of the war, he said this was a war we fought for the independence and freedom of Belgium yeah, or for the independence and freedom of some other small country. It was a war of self-determination against German imperialism. Well, what did the German imperialists say? Well, they said exactly the same thing. This was a war of independence and freedom of our right to self-determination against being crushed by these foreign imperialist aggressors. And actually, they were both right. This was an anti-imperialist war. In this war, it would be a crime on the part of the workers to shoot at one another. Differences as we may have, members of my family, organisation in the audience, we have many differences. If those differences were to break out into open political you know, violence and I shoot at you, is that not a crime I'm committing against you? Is it not a crime for the workers of England to shoot down the workers of Germany or the workers of Russia to shoot down the workers of Germany? And in whose interests were they fighting this war? This was a document. It might sound very revolutionary. It might sound unusual. It's not how we're taught the history of World War I. But it was very clear to all members of the working class at that time, to the extent that Ramsay MacDonald, leader of the Labour Party, was able to append a signature to it. The war leads, therefore, to proletarian revolution, and in fact did lead to mutiny in the ranks of the army. 
in Britain and in Germany and in Russia and amongst all participating nations. Because what's in it for you? You can generally say, well, what's in it for me? And you get along by and, you know, I'm making ends meet and things are okay. But if then as a young man, you're ripped from your family and you're sent just to climb over the trench and die. And if you don't do it, you're going to be executed as a coward or, or imprisoned. Does that not create an acute crisis in your consciousness where you say, well, why the bloody hell am I doing it? Why, why would I shoot my brothers? Well, actually, more likely than not, just be marched over a trench and instantly massacred as people were in their tens and hundreds of thousands day after day throughout the war. Why do it? So a revolutionary situation was there. And it was out of that situation that came the acute crisis in Russia that led to the October Revolution. And similar situation happened in Germany and Romania and Austria, written out of history like the Bavarian Soviet never existed. But they did exist. The people rose in revolution. Revolution would arise out of this war. And the Labour Party, having betrayed that, as the Social Democratic Party in Germany betrayed that, with a few honourable exceptions who broke away, like Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg, they were very keen to pass over this in silence, resurrect the Second International, but in fact it died from that time. Because those parties had proved themselves to be not acting in the interests of working people, but acting in the interests of the oppressing class. And that has been the history of the Labour Party through and through, proven from that day to this. Nevertheless, Lenin writing in these trenchant terms of the stinking corpse of social democracy, of the betrayal of the workers, of social chauvinists, of people who are socialists in words, but chauvinists, reactionaries in deeds, social imperialists, socialists in words, but imperialists in deeds. Yeah? Because while they were talking about socialism, they were really mobilising the people to fight for the interests of their own capitalist oppressing class. Yeah? Difficult to put these lines, but if you're afraid of the truth, you can never make any progress towards socialism. Okay? So despite Lenin writing all these things, he advocated a tactical alliance of the Communists with the Labour Party in order to expose and undermine that Labour Party. Does that make sense? Is that clear? So the original sin, really, of this 1951 programme was to discard the line that it was necessary to have a revolution to get rid of the capitalist class, that in order to bring about conditions of social ease, peace, liberty, equality, good education, good health care, good child care. It was necessary, actually, to get rid of exploitation. And to do that, you would need to actually take control of your nation's wealth. And to do that, you would have to displace the, the class and their mechanism of force that they hold on to that wealth by the bourgeoisie. And therefore, what we can actually do instead is something slightly different. We can just fight the top, wing, top right-wing leadership of the Labour Party, reclaim the Labour Party... In fact, that was never the character of the Labour Party, but reclaim the Labour Party, use that as a vehicle for building uh, towards state power. And once you're in state power, you can use the state as it exists to gradually bring about socialism. And that is essentially what we're going to go through as being the path of the British road to socialism, just fighting its top right-wing leadership from within. There were other other errors of the British road to socialism. They talked about... Uh, U.S. imperialism, because it was easier to talk about U.S. imperialism than British imperialism, which was still a very strong force, and the alliance of the two. There was a capitulation to pacifism, the kind of fear of the new nuclear age, that war now was unthinkable. Never unthinkable for the imperialists. Imperialists are always happy to openly talk about first nuclear strike, 
to lay a chain of cobalt around the neck of the Chinese people so their race will never rise again, as McCarthy, that famous wartime leader, General oh, sorry, MacArthur, sorry, General Douglas MacArthur, said when he persecuted the, uh, the Korean War, he wanted to use it not just for the Koreans, but for the Chinese. First nuclear strike against communist China. Make it so that their race will never rise again in 100 years. This openly what they talk about, first nuclear strike. But for us, we must be worried about nuclear war. We can't possibly have another war. So this, this tinge of pacifism started to appear. Of course, we don't want nuclear war. But are we to be cowed in the face of our oppressor bristling with weapons? Actually, it's gonna, we, if, if through our struggle we make it impossible for them to use them against us, we bring a peaceful world. We can see clearly that imperialism in place has not brought about a peaceful world. So the dereliction of duty to get rid of those imperialists has only left them free for their warmongering. Um, there was a, uh, an idea, there was a failure to state equivocally that those countries still in the British Empire had the right to self-determination. Um, India had already become uh, uh, you know, separate, but there was a, a gradual transition from this period from the empire to the Commonwealth. And that meant direct colonial rule was handed to these countries, but overwhelmingly the financial ties and the interests of investment were maintained. And, it, and people are still not sure about what the Commonwealth is. Essentially, it's a mechanism by which British capital penetrates and exploits all those countries with whom they had a former colonial co- connection. But really, it started to say that every institution, the British Road to Socialism and branch of the British state, could be peacefully turned into an instrument of working class rule. And at the centre of all that, was the Labour Party. So the people of Britain can transform, this is its words, the people of Britain can transform capitalist democracy into a real people's democracy. Transforming Parliament, the product of Britain's historic struggle for democracy, true, but meaningless, (laughs) into the democratic instrument of the will of the vast majority of her people. Now that has never been, it's been the instrument of the capitalist class through its stages of evolution. I could break the political hold of the capitalist class by democratic reform, democratic ownership of the press, people's control of the BBC, can you imagine? (laughs) The democratic transformation of the civil service, the foreign office, the armed forces, the police, the law courts, and the administration of justice. So every branch of the state, up to and including the royal family, would become a people's royal family. You can leave it just as it is. You don't have to get rid of it. We're a mature people. We're a people who, through historical process, have brought forth democratic institutions, and we can just turn them over and they'll just do our will for us. Now, this is in stark contradiction. I don't need to remind people in the room, but it's useful just to juxtapose this to the idea of Marxism, which is meant to be the heart of socialism as we understand it in a modern sense, and certainly the heart of communism. So the last preface to the new German edition of the Communist Manifesto, signed by Marx and Engels, the founders of modern scientific socialism, of communism, um, they said, you know, there are some details of the old Communist Manifesto that in view of our experience of the Paris Commune of 1871 have become out of date. And in particular, one thing especially was proved by the Paris Commune, viz. that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. He said explicitly they have to smash the old state machine, which by a thousand threads is linked to the capitalist class. 
by breeding, by history, by instinct, by the people in place, by their very social fabric, and by money and bribery and corruption. All the things we've seen during the lace pandemic and that we see continuously, whether it's the MP's corruption scandal or whatever, or whether it's cash for questions, or whether it's, you know, I, I, there are too many examples to name to prove to you that the capitalist class and their representatives in Parliament are very heavily joined together. And simply forming a government, as the Labour Party have repeatedly shown, is not enough to change the nature of capitalist class rule. Unfortunately, this wasn't just a... So 1951, this this first edition was published, along with this election, which was lost by Labour and brought back in Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, who had initially, after the Second World War, wanted to immediately march on Moscow. (laughs) Who wanted to start a next world war and launch nuclear war against Russia to strangle them at birth and was only advised against it by his own very reactionary general staff who said it militarily wasn't possible because they were too strong and the people wouldn't go along with it because the Soviet Union was too popular. But this Winston Churchill, let's not forget who he is. Um, But unfortunately then what happened in the Soviet Union was that Stalin died, Khrushchev came to power, and in fact the class forces that were still at work, even after socialism, there's still a class struggle intensely raging in the Soviet Union, switched thread, and the revisionists came into power, people who started to reintroduce capitalism uh, in the Soviet Union itself. And as a result, this British road to socialism, which might otherwise have been corrected, became ossified and became the accepted kind of yardstick of the way to conduct the class struggle that we basically live with ever since. It's been rewritten and rewritten. Um, and in fact, the BRS was published in its sixth edition just prior to it, that the CPGB's 41st Congress, which was in 1989. So just at the time of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, when Khrushchevite revisionism was leading to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the CPGB passed a resolution at its final Congress, which can be seen as the culmination of this program and this process, in which they said communism was a mistake of historic proportions. They dissolved their organisation and shut up shop. All of the resources that workers had, you know, I can't tell you, I still used to meet you know, in my early days of activism, communists who had been young men and women, who had grown up and built the CPGB, who had participated in it, who had given their lives to it, had given huge amounts of donation to it, their organisational life, their creative life, who had voted for it, yes, but also built it practically, had campaigned for it, who had given it resources, and when they died, they willed whatever they had in the world to it. Those resources were precious. They were the Marx Memorial Library. They were centres in Bristol, centres in Scotland, centres throughout the country of communist activity, and people's printing press, people's travel agency. You name it, this was a, an organisation that was a living, vibrant force in working politics. And that was just squandered. It was stolen by local people. You know, it was cut up and... In this process of dissolution, different communist parties arose. One of them, one of them was the CPB. And the CPB, all those splinter organisations that broke from it, claimed that they were against this process of Euro-communism, which had led to the defeat. But what all of them had failed to do was analyse really what had happened in the Soviet Union, why it had led to defeat, and look intensely at their own programme in the light of a kind of classical understanding of class struggle and Marxism, Leninism, and say this was the problem. And in fact, the CPB just blindly carried over that, that, that programme and that orientation. Um, and then in uh, 2011, they, they came out with another edition, and then in 2020, another edition. And again, they essentially 
did it as an election manifesto to the extent that they participated in elections. And when they did participate in those elections, they made it quite clear that where they weren't standing, the working class should vote for Labour Party. And as they're such a minor electoral force, wherever they do stand and they don't stand in most places, essentially, it amounted to vote for the Labour Party. OK? Um, but we'll look now at a few excerpts. So how long have I been already? I'll try and kind of go through these quite quickly. I'm going to look at a few excerpts of the kind of things that it said. And I, and I cover this in more detail in my pamphlet. Okay, and, I, and I encourage you to get hold of a copy and have a look through in, in detail because it's worth knowing. But, for example, when they look back at the Soviet Union in the new, okay, the new British Road to Social in its latest 2011 and 2020 editions, it expanded massively from a few pages, 20 pages, to about kind of 18, 90 pages. And what it is is a kind of a, it's kind of a brief trot through 150 years of modern history. And it does talk about communism, it does talk about class society, and it does talk about capitalism. But what it does very neatly is it whitewashes all of those events of the concrete history of the Labour Party, the concrete role of the Labour Party in the betrayals of the working class, the concrete role of the Labour Party in reinforcing anti-worker legislation, colonial escapades and all the rest of it, so that you kind of get a, a blurred picture and preserving at its heart always the concept that really what we need is Simply vote for the Labour Party. In its uh, appraisal of the Soviet Union, it denounced it as having a bureaucratic command system of economic and political rule. So planned economy doesn't work, so we just neatly got rid of Marx there. Um, Communist Party, the Soviet Union, the trade unions became integrated into the apparatus of the state, eroding working class and popular democracy. Go figure. I'd invite you all to get hold of a book called Pat Sloan's Soviet Democracy. I'm not going to be able to explain to you how a Soviet dictatorship works. Soviet democracy, Soviet dictatorship, working class dictatorship, dictatorship of the proletariat, as Marx would call it, working class rule. If you want to make things set up for the interests of the working people, the working people have to be in power. They have to be in economic power, and they have to be in political power, or they can't do it. Jeremy Corbyn can promise free internet, and he can promise that they'll get rid of tuition fees. But actually, the capitalist class didn't want it. And as he wasn't in power, they simply sabotaged his hope of becoming the prime. We, we want to give that away. So to put even the simplest measure in place for the working people, you have to have political power, and you have to have economic power. And right now, we don't have it. I can solve all the problems of this country and the world in my mind. <laughs> but to do it in practice, I have to actually have possession of the levers of power, Enough of us have to be in power, we're like-minded with an actual programme and decide to do it. And who stands in our way? Well, the capitalist class. They own everything. Why couldn't we... I can treat people in the pandemic the way I wanted to. I would like to have got all the people who had COVID, put them in a safe place, isolated, quarantined from society, treated them until they were well, made sure they're well before we released them in society. No COVID pandemic. Couldn't do it. Because I'm not in control of hospital policy. I'm not in control of the private property where I need to quarantine people. I'm not in control of government policy. I'm not in control of money. So can't solve even simple problems under capitalism. Can't solve disease. It's a simple problem. Medicine can solve disease, but we can't do it unless you have the social infrastructure and apparatus in place to actually do it. So actually having unions involved in power having the Communist Party in power, having the working people in power, having a Soviet democracy is socialism. If you decide that that is no good, and that was an excess, well, then you've thrown away socialism. 
severe violations of social democracy, large numbers of people innocent of subversion and sabotage, prosecuted, imprisoned, executed. So all of the anti-communist myths perpetrated within this document, Britain's Road to Socialism, which says, throw away all that experience, don't look to revolution, working people shouldn't be in power, just vote Labour. It'll be fine. I'll invite people to read Perestroika, The Complete Collapse of Revisionism, and I'll invite people just to cast their mind back briefly. Who's that by? Uh, who's it by? You have to say who it's by. It's by Harpal Bra, and it's available on our website, thecommunists.org. <laughs> Don't want to turn it into an infomercial, <laughs> but, but, but there's a lot of literature which can, ex- can really explain these phenomena. But what's quite clear is that this party hadn't explained it and therefore was happy to carry on just tolling the bell, calling themselves communists, but actually saying just vote and support for Labour Party and that will sort everything out. My father, speaking of Harpal Bra, used to like to say, well, you know, if I run Tesco's, I don't ask everyone to shop at Sainsbury's. So why would I sit in the Communist Party and ask everyone to vote for the Labour Party? It doesn't make any sense. If you really think Sainsbury's is better, go enjoy Sainsbury's. And ask everyone to buy their food at Sainsbury's. You know, if you're really in the Communist Party, you think the Labour Party is the mass party of the working class, you should join it. Make a go of it. Make it work. Or if you don't, then don't call for a vote for them and make it clear that you stand for something different and put out, set out your stool and win workers to that. Build, build a movement. Um, with Corbyn, of course, the CPB stopped printing British Road to Socialism. They made quite a big play of saying, this is it. We've got our, this is the first stage. We've got our left-wing Labour leader. We're just going to merge ourselves. And actually, the whole of the British left, trots, revisionists, everyone, just flocked into the Labour Party. Labour Party made it, was embarrassed by it. The press used to print articles about it. Communists say they've got no difference with Jeremy Corbyn. They were using it as an item to discredit the Labour Party. So Corbyn had to back paddle, and even more than he wanted to, maybe, disown every positive, progressive principle he'd ever had. I was the leader of the CND, but now I think we need a nuclear deterrent, and first strike is probably all right. I don't like it, but we'll go along with it. And of course, we should renew the deterrent. I mean, we've got a free vote, and we, we shouldn't like, actually have rain cruise missiles on Syria, but you guys have got a free vote for it in Parliament. And, you know, if we have to, then we have to. And we shouldn't really have extraterritorial assassinations of people in other countries by drone without any kind of trial or judicial process. But, well, I guess if we have to, that there are bad people out there, and so we'll have to do that. And I, I like Chavez, but, you know, uh, I think violence is wrong, and, you know, I'm kind of against both. And I, I, I like the Palestinian people, but... You know, I'm not against the Jews. I want to make that clear. And I'm basically, I just would just, I just would leave, leave them to it. And, you know, what is, this is the left-wing leadership of the Labour Party, which is untenable. And you, George used to say, George Galloway used to say, you know, if you don't run away, they can't chase you. But the point is they'd run away from the beginning. <laughs> they'd run away from socialism from the beginning. You could never answer the question. Oh, how are you going to balance the books? You want to give all these things away. You want to give internet to everyone. How are you going to balance that? Internet doesn't cost much. Kwesi Kwarteng has just given a budget in which, what's he promised? He promised tax cuts that amount to several hundreds of billions of pounds, which will build up in debt. And, you know, so even on a bourgeois system, their debt's going to become super expensive. Oh, mortgage rates are all going to have to go up. You're all going to become homeless. And, but it's given away huge amounts of money. Rishi Shunak gave away huge amounts of money. Internet costs nothing compared to that. So why can't you give away internet? Yeah, but the bottom line is they don't want anyone to even talk about socialist measures. What's absolutely clear is the Tories, whenever they give something away, they're doing it to try and suppress dissent in the population. They're in a desperate situation of 
anger at the increasing cost of living. That's anger at capitalism. That's the normal workings of capitalism. But we're not going to call it that. We're just going to give away stuff and hope that we kind of get away with it. Okay? Equally, his tax cut was a massive giveaway mainly to the rich and very little to the poor, right? So always, it's not just a question of balancing the books, it's a question of who really owns the wealth of society. And what you can be absolutely sure is if you don't set your, your sights on redistribution, and Kwesi Kwarteng said, for too long we've been talking about redistribution. There's no difference between business and workers and interests. He said that very explicitly while he's giving this giveaway. No difference in our interests. Tax cuts for the rich, we'll give a few stops. Very, you know, maybe we'll cap gas prices a little bit. But really, everything they're doing is to preserve capitalism, stop social dissent at home, and carry on fleecing the rest of the world. That's the program. Not, no change. Okay? But from the beginning, the British road to socialism said, we'll just support Labour, and Labour have essentially said, we'll carry on with capitalism. And every time they try and get into power, they say, we'll manage it as well as the Tories. And therefore, they go out of their way to prove on item after item. But during that time, the CPP said, during Corbyn's time, the CPP did not fight elections. And then once he's gone and Starmer's here, lo and behold, back in elections, reprinting the British Road to Socialism, which says exactly what it said before. Just support Labour, everything will be all right. Get in a left-wing Labour government, everything will be all right. Never mind that we just... Hang on, didn't we just... We just had a left-wing Labour government, and that was the programme... And it was a total failure. Are we not going to examine that, see what happened? Why didn't it work? We're just going to keep on doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results. You can if you like. (laughs) True, we had a left-wing Labour leader, not a left-wing Labour government. It's true. But essentially... Throughout this, the heart of the BRS has been this. This is their words. Through an upsurge in working class and popular action, a left government can be elected in Britain based on parliamentary majorities of Labour. And then there's a long list. Socialist, communist, progressive. And they even throw in Cornish nationalists, Scottish nationalists, Welsh nationalists, Greens, independents, liberals, basically everyone. But basically Labour and whoever you want to support at the moment, because our movement's disintegrating and shattering. Okay? And that's it. A socialist society can then be built. But how? By whom? With what support? By pressure from outside parliament. But what pressure? From whom? From outside parliament? And pressure to achieve what? All of this is left up in the air. So what it all amounts to is vote Labour everywhere. And that's the take-home message that its supporters are left to try and reconcile to square the circle in their mind. They talk about Labour being the centre then of a popular democratic anti-monopoly alliance. Now in 2011, when they published these words, Labour at the centre, just, just, just hear the words of a popular democratic anti-monopoly alliance. Sounds all right. I'd sign up for a popular democratic anti-monopoly alliance. It's got to be a step forward. It's better, isn't it? It's better than having the Tories, who we know are our rabid enemies. But hang on. In 2011, this was just three years after Gordon Brown, first the Chancellor of the Exchequer, now Labour Prime Minister, in 2008, when the banks collapsed under the weight of the crisis created by capitalism and the financial industry, and the housing crisis in particular at that time, the banks collapsed. 850 billion was given of our money, of your money, my money, my children's school money, your hospital money, the reason I can't 
operate on my patients because there's no ITU bed. So they have to delay them. So they have to go home. So the waiting lists get longer and longer. The reason housing gets worse and worse, the reason whole neighbourhoods of London are being gentrified, 850 billion of your money was given to bankers because they were too big to fail. Remember that? Too big to fail. People were like up in arms. How can I give that money to the bankers when we've been told there's not enough money for us? But suddenly, gradually, that agenda got kind of transformed into just general anti-immigrant sentiment and people coming over here, taking our limited resources, and everyone's forgotten their anger with the bankers in 2008. And who gave that money? Who showed his leadership qualities before the world by initiating this? It wasn't just us. We gave $850 billion. Barack Obama said, I'm standing between you and the pitchforks. Barack Obama, that nice man, good liberal man, first black man in the White House. I'm standing between you and the pitchforks, he said to a meeting of bankers. Gave away a trillion. All that money given away. Is that a popular, democratic, anti-monopoly alliance? Or is that, in fact, an anti-democratic alliance of the Labour Party leadership and the monopolists to defraud the British workers? And it just carries on in this vein. It glosses over the anti-communist history of Labour. You know, who, who do we know who formed NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, that bombed Yugoslavia in 1999, a war of humanitarianism, first of its kind, with Blair and Clinton at, at the helm, pioneers for democracy that they were, smashing up Serbia, bringing war to Europe. EU, of course, we're told, has brought peace in Europe to our time, but we always have to write out you know, this particular conflict. NATO has been at the helm of turning Ukraine into a hive of fascism, directing it against Russia to bring again war to Europe. And lo and behold, what's happened to all that agricultural land in the Ukraine? About a third of it has been bought up by foreign and nationally companies. One third of it is apparently owned by Warren Buffett. One third of it is apparently owned by Bill Gates. I'm not sure. I don't know, Monsanto, Monsanto. might have a third of it. Yeah. All right, so these huge monopolies who just want democracy and freedom, and never mind, don't, don't look at all of the fascist insignia on the, on the foot soldiers that they're unleashing in Ukraine to destroy the history, to uproot the statues of Lenin and Stalin. This is the place where fascism was defeated in World War II, don't forget. Suddenly this rise of fascism is happening again. And what's happening, lo and behold, all of the land resources are not only grabbed by local oligarchs that we've told, oh, that's just the fallout of communism. No, no, no. Our biggest monopolies are going in buying it up. Hunter Biden, don't look at his laptop. <laughs> don't go and see the extent to which we're involved in developing chemical weapons. God knows what chemical weapons that they were developing on the border of Russia in all these biolabs in this deregulated area. Don't look at the fraud and the massive robbery of the Ukrainian people. No, 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 no. That NATO, who was it formed by? NATO that's at the centre of this warmongering world. It was formed by the post-war Labour government of Clement Attlee, okay? And Keir Starmer recently, on the... I don't know if you remember this little drama when Keir Starmer was walking down the road to Whitehall and he bumped into Piers Corbyn. And Piers Corbyn started having a go at him, calling him whatever, for whatever reasons, COVID denier, all the rest of it. But he also said, you were involved in covering up for Jimmy Savile, which it turns out is true. He was involved in covering... And it was a lot of things in Parliament were kind of said, oh, this is terrible. How can you make this accusation? What was he doing in that Whitehall Street when he bumped into Piers Corbyn? He'd just come from a briefing 
for the Foreign Office, where he's being filled in on the impending war in Ukraine, and he was being told to sing the right bloody tune on Ukraine and make sure Labour, we're going to have national unity now, Labour Party are all for supporting the Ukrainian people. Supporting the Ukrainian people is a byword for, you know, launching an aggressive NATO attack to encroach Russia and this horrible war they've plunged the Ukrainian people into has absolutely been brought and engineered by NATO. But what did he do afterwards? He wrote, a, he penned a beautiful article available in uh, The Guardian saying, what's the institution we're most proud of that Labour created? Of course, everyone thinks of the NHS, which is all very important. But the best institution that we've ever come out with is NATO, which has guaranteed our freedom, democracy, human rights, you know? So he's paving the way, using Labour's hold, connection with the unions, not for revolutionary action. It's not the unions which are making Labour revolutionary. It's Labour which are making the unions reformist and toe the line and keep to the bounds of capitalist democracy. Glosses over the anti-communist history. It was formed as an anti-communist alliance, not, let's not forget. Glosses over Labour's crimes against the working class, against Labour's imperialist war crimes. And in particular, it glosses over the British road to socialism, glosses over the split in the working class movement that happened because Britain's an imperialist country. And it meant that the super profits that Britain generated from exploiting so much of the world, you know, the huge amount of capital that flows through the city of London, is the loot of previous generations of colonialism. And because there's so much loot, you know, Cecil Rhodes famously said when he came back and visited England in 1901, coming back from South Africa, when he was trying to come back and get permission to invade what was then Matabili land, which later became North and South Rhodesia, or Zimbabwe and Zambia. Yeah? Rhodes, who was the owner of De Beers Mining Company and a big monopolist, he came back to London for support for this escapade in Parliament, which he got. And then he went on to launch his colonial expedition. And while he was here, he saw classic demonstrations in the street of very hungry working class Britons demanding bread, bread, bread. He described them as rabid demonstrations. People demanding. What were they, what were they facing? They were facing a cost of living crisis. <laughs> yeah. They were the workshop of the world. They were producing, but they were on the edge of starvation existence. And that was the basis of the huge profits of British imperialism. Workshop of the world, export goods. He said... If we want to stop revolution in Britain, Cecil Rhodes, we need to become imperialists. We need to have more colonies abroad, get more loot from the colonies, use some of that loot to ameliorate the conditions of our workers at home, raise their standard of life, and in that way we could stabilise the system and stop revolution. If you want social peace at home, you must become imperialists. Cecil Rhodes and Lenin quoted it in Lenin's State and Revolution. And Labour have imbibed that. You know, there's a split in the working class has become possible and the best paid elements of the working class amongst whom I am economically. No question. I'm a professional. I'm a worker because I don't, if I don't work, I don't eat. I can't live. I don't live off capital. I live off my skilled labor. But I'm a privileged worker. I get paid a lot. So people who have my kind of bracket of existence, and that can mean you're a tube driver. Not all tube drivers. It can mean you're a trade union bureaucrat. It can mean you're a lawyer. It can mean you're a guardian reader and a teacher. It can mean lots of different things, right? 
economically. There's a group of people who economically come I in. You're petty bourgeois, come I in. You're a taxicab driver, come I in. Lots of things. You're essentially a worker with relatively privileged conditions. It was that group in particular who became the social base for conducting the influence of the capitalists into the working class movement and making sure it didn't become too radical. And it was that group that the Labour Party represented. And from the beginning, it saw its interest as being allied and reconciled with the capitalist imperialist system, which it has always defended to the hilt. And you can see that from. Ramsay MacDonald, very explicitly, Clement Attlee, very explicitly, if you look for their writings and their attitude towards colonialism, you can see it from Fabians, who Lenin, in the, in the course of World War I, described as Fabian imperialists, okay, the Fabian socialists, all the way, basically liberalism, all the way through to, in a, in a perfect, unbroken line, to our current leader, Sir Keir Starmer, who is very obviously a Tory in red clothes. I mean, it's very clear. I am going to... really draw to a close, not to say that I fully exposed everything I was going to, but it's just simply I've gone on too long. I've kind of structured it slightly different. All of this, in a position of the British road to socialism, leads to what they call a left-wing programme, which essentially becomes like a magic shopping list where they just name everything they want. Like, I want free internet and I want, uh, you know, brilliant education. And actually, monopoly companies overseas we're going to make them behave in an ethical and environmentally friendly way. <laughs> I don't know how. We're going to make capitalism responsible. We're going to restrict capital flow. So we're going to stop export of capital. And we're going to make the state loyal to British... It's impossible to do, right? You can't preserve capitalism and achieve the magical things they want capitalism to perform. And you get a hint of that when Jeremy Corbyn came up with his list and it's ridiculed. It's because actually you can't just give those stuff away unless the capitalists want to give it away. It's not yours to give away. So either you pose that question frankly and say, if you want stuff, you've got to take it. If you want a house, well, I don't know if you know this, but you don't own Britain. In fact, most, many of the British working class are homeless. 5% of us are homeless. Do you know that currently? But even if you take every single home of every person, not just the poor people, but also the wealthy people, big houses and little houses, put them all together... That takes up one-twentieth, five percent of the land mass of Britain. All of our homes, Englishmen's homes is castle and all that. Yeah? So we have a very small amount of land. The Queen and her family by themselves have one percent of the land, total land surface area of the United Kingdom. And if you look at the land, the vast majority of the land is owned by a handful of families and companies. If you want stuff, if you want better social conditions, if you want to ameliorate the ills of society, they can all be done. But it needs redistribution of wealth. It needs to take from the rich in order to be able to give to the poor in a Robin Hood style. And if you can't broach that question, if you can only say, get labour in, somehow pressure them from outside, and somehow everything will come good in the end, you discredit yourself precisely amongst the long-term supporters of the Labour Party who've lived with the Labour Party governments, administrations and councils and have found none of their problems have been solved. So I'm going to draw it to close there. We can have a bit of question and answer. I haven't been able to go through absolutely everything in the document. There is a kind of much more point-by-point, paragraph-by-paragraph you know, um, uh, answer to the points raised and the way it's raised in the British Road to Socialism. But what I hope I've given you an acquaintance with is the fundamental core of that document. It's a Communist Party in name who have called for support for the Labour Party and essentially 
you know, the, the whole of the programme can really be summarised in the front cover of the Morning Star, which we've genuinely seen, right, on the eve of every election, when they simply print a paper that says, vote Labour everywhere. And I want to convince you that that, in fact, is not going to lead to socialism, that we need to educate the working people who already are becoming disillusioned with Labour and turn them towards the concept that actually Labour isn't socialism. They're not disillusioned with socialism, they're disillusioned with this, which is social democracy, which is a, 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 a sham and a fraud. It's playing at socialism. It's dressing up in socialist clothes, but carrying on really representing capitalism. And what's needed actually is socialism, <laughs> which means workers' power economically and politically, and it's that we must fight for and organise for. Thank you, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs>